Um, my name's Tony. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. BJ's away uh, this morning. He's actually preaching at Rexdale Alliance uh, Church. So you get to hear from me this morning. Um, one thing that you may not know about me and probably don't care is that I like movies. Um, but I'm not uh, a huge movie buff. I don't have a great movie IQ. I don't, I'm not very good with like actors and actresses' names, and I often forget details of movies, so I have no problem most of the time watching a movie twice because I probably forgot um, how it ended anyways. But <clears throat> every once in a while, there's a movie that for some reason just kind of sticks with me, and I never forget. And one of those movies for me uh, is the movie Six, The Sixth Sense. came out about 15 years ago. Um, I remember like where I was. I remember the movie theater I saw it in. I remember who I was with for some reason. That was a movie for me that just like blew my mind. I'm going to tell you about it. If you haven't seen it by now, this is your spoiler alert. You've had 15 years to watch it. Um, so too bad. Um, so the movie is about this guy who uh, Bruce Willis plays. His name is Malcolm Crow, and he's a child psychologist. Um, so he helps kids work through their that. Hey, there we go. Okay, issues are fixed. Um, so this guy, child psychologist, name is Malcolm Crow. Um, the movie kind of starts with he and his wife coming home from some kind of a dinner party or award thing that they were at, and they come home to see that their window is broken and their house has been broken into. So he starts looking through his house for, to make sure everything is safe. He comes into the bathroom and sees this man who's stripped down all the way to his underwear and sobbing in tears. The guy's a mess. And the guy starts talking to him. Um, and through the conversation, Malcolm Crow realizes that this is a man who used to be a, a child, as we all are, who he counseled, um, but he actually failed. He never helped this kid through the issues that he had. Um, and so now this, this guy is pretty much ruined, and he's sobbing in Malcolm's bathroom. Um, all of a sudden, he pulls out a gun. He, he basically has come to sort of take back uh, or, or get back at Malcolm for failing him. He pulls out the gun, he turns it on Malcolm, he shoots him in the gut, he turns it on his own head, boom. And the scene ends. All of a sudden, the next scene picks up, and you see Malcolm, he's up and running again, and he's on his way to meet a new client, another boy who he's never met before, but who he's going to take on as a client. And he begins uh, to meet with this boy. It's very tentative at first, but after a while, the boy starts to open up, and he reveals what his problem is that Malcolm needs to work with him through, he sees dead people. That's the, the famous line that came from the movie, I see dead people, right? Um, and so Malcolm starts to work with him through the issues that he has. And over the course of the movie, he makes some progress and he helps the boy work through um, uh, the majority of his issues. Um, but the movie kind of comes to a head all at the end, uh, many of you have seen it probably, um, where you realize all of the pieces start to come together and Malcolm actually discovers this truth as the viewer does himself, or as we do ourselves as we're watching it, that Malcolm Crow is actually dead. And he's been dead the whole time and he is actually one of the dead people that the boy has been seeing. And in fact, the boy was helping him as much as he was helping the boy over the course of the movie. But I remember watching that movie, like I said, I have a low movie IQ. I didn't pick up on this at all over the course of the movie. Neither did my friends. Maybe if you saw it, you did earlier. But this was mind-blowing to me because this was the moment that happened at the end of the movie that all of a sudden changed everything else in terms of how I understood everything else about the movie right from the beginning. And I remember walking home with my friends and we were like, 
all of our minds were blown. We were like, I can't believe this. And we were kind of working through the movie, scene by scene, in light of this new revelation that had come at the end, this new moment that had now changed everything. Do you know what I mean? Um, okay, I don't want to make too much of a leap here, but I think, I think there's something in all of us that in some, like we don't often give words to it like this or, or put it into, into conversation that we have um, regularly, but I think there's something in us that's looking for, that's longing for that kind of moment in our own lives. You know, that moment, that kind of once we discover it, whether it's an experience or <clears throat> a turning point or a revelation of some kind in our life, where once we discover it, it's going to make sense out of everything that has happened in our past and it will somehow kind of reshape or redefine our future for us. All of us, I think, in some way are looking kind of for that kind of moment, for that kind of experience. Um, I think, like, the promise of winning the lottery is kind of based on that kind of search that we all have, right? Win the lottery, it's going to make all the struggles of your past seem worth it. It's going to make all the dreams for your future come through, come true. Um, Often we look for it in significant relationships. We feel like we just need to find that one person who will get me, who will make sense of my life for me, and who I'll be able to walk into the future with in the happily ever after. Um, I think a lot of people go to religion for that. Um, that we can find that sense of enlightenment, or truth, or the light, so that we can find our way, whatever it is, that will make sense of our lives and bring all that we feel is fragmented in our history and in our lives together into some kind of cohesive whole. And what the scripture tells us, what the story tells us that we've been working through over the last year, um, is that that moment has actually already happened. Um, it's what we celebrated last week with Easter. It's, it's the revelation, not that um, Malcolm is dead, but that Jesus is alive, right? Um, that, that he is the one that the whole story, that everything that has happened in the story before him has actually been leading up to and points to. And he is the one that all of history after him, in a sense, comes out of. He's the one, the scripture tells us, who, who makes sense of all of our past and who shapes and redefines all of our future. And we had six people getting baptized here last week. And this is essentially the statement that they were making when they got dunked, that Jesus has become that moment for each of them, right? That he is that revelation for them that has made sense of all of their past, of all of the brokenness in their own life. And he is the one who is reshaping and redefining all of their future, right? He's become the center of each one of these new stories that's taking shape before us. And in the last few months, we've been working through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And we've been studying this moment, this event, the rescue itself. We've been digging deep into it, and we've been looking um, <clears throat> at all the ways that Jesus brings rescue into the world and into our lives. And we've um, been looking at the reality that this is the moment. This is the moment that has changed everything. Jesus is the one through whom I can understand all my past and who reshapes and redefines my future. He changes how I think. He changes my priorities, my hopes, and my ambitions. And we've been um, in a sense, diving deep into this moment over the last several months as we've been looking at the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> and now, over the next six weeks, we're going to go and move forward through the story into the book of Hebrews, which is another book in the New Testament. And if we can understand Luke as a sense of, if we can understand Luke uh, to be like 
like the revelation at the end of the movie that Malcolm is dead, um, then I think what Hebrews is, is that conversation that takes place after the movie that begins to go through each scene, scene by scene, and begins to unpack it in light of this moment because everything else in the story has been changed. And so over the next six weeks, we're gonna engage in that conversation. We're gonna look back over the story um, because Hebrews is a book that says if, if what happened really happened, then what does the rest of it all mean? So we're gonna look at, at some of the, the, the characters and the symbols, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and some of the key stories in the Old Testament in what we've been calling the old community. We're gonna unpack it all in light of this moment, the rescue of Jesus that's changed everything. Um, and yet the book of Hebrews is a book that doesn't leave us there either. It doesn't just look back but then it begins to ask questions about our present and our future as well. It says that if Jesus is the moment that changes everything in the story, then what does it mean for him to be the moment that changes everything in our own lives? And so in that sense, Hebrews is a book that kind of encompasses everything from B.C. to A.D. Um, It unpacks kind of everything that took place before Christ and then gives us the true meaning of it. And then it gives us meaning to everything that takes place after Christ. The book of Hebrews is a book that is saying every year since Christ is an AD year. It's the year of our Lord because everything is meant to center on him. And so today, we're gonna kind of go into an introduction of the book and we're gonna do that by looking at the introduction of the book of Hebrews. It's the first three verses and I'm gonna read them for you and then we'll start to unpack them. It says this, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So this is how the book opens. It opens with these three verses that, in a way, is this kind of wide, sweeping overview of the whole story up to this point. He's saying these are all the years, all the ways, all the people that God has spoken through, but now, in these last days, God has done something different. And so I'm just going to unpack these uh, few verses briefly here for us. This first verse kind of looks back at everything that has happened in what we've been calling the old community. It says, first, in the past. He's saying, this is the way that God used to do things. This is the way that God used to speak. This is his MO that used to be. It's in the past. Um, God spoke through the prophets. And this is what God did. This was the way that most often he brought his revelation to the people. He would choose another ordinary person among them to be his representative, to be, in a sense, his voice. And he would give them a message, and then that was the message that was meant to be relayed to the whole community. And so the way that God had always spoken in the past was was very seldom directly to all the people. It was almost always through a mediator. It was a kind of broken telephone, if we can think of it like that. Um, And then it says he spoke in many times and in various ways. And the language around this is something that strongly implies the fact that the message never came as a complete whole. It always came in bits, in pieces, in fragments. 
um, there was never any one message that gave the whole message of God. And even in a sense, when we take all of these previous messages and put them all together and try and make something whole out of it, it tells us more than any one single uh, message does, but it still doesn't give us the complete picture. It was many times, it was in various ways. It was partial, incomplete, fragmented in many ways. But then verse 2 starts to unpack what this moment has done, what this moment that has changed everything has actually done. And so the writer says, but in these last days, he's marking a turning point. He's saying now something has happened that has never happened before. It's no longer in the past. Now we're in a new day. And he says, God has spoken. And so there's no longer a sense of partiality to it or fragmentation to it. But there's a sense that God has given the final word. He has spoken. It's complete. There's no need for more because what he has done is done. And here's the game changer. This is the thing that changes everything. He's no longer spoken through prophets, but he's spoken through his son. And the son, like I said, isn't merely a prophet. He's not just a messenger, some ordinary person who God chose to give his message in a broken telephone kind of way. Now he's saying the son is the message. He is the one who kind of completes and brings together and fulfills all of the other messages that have been sent up to this point. The son is the word of God. He's not a letter to be passed on. He's not a book to be read. He's not just a list of rules to follow or to obey. The message comes to us in the form of a person. He's God himself having come all the way down to meet with us face to face, no longer to engage with us in this kind of one-way kind of communication that's broken and mediated through another person, but now to be in relationship with us, to carry on a new kind of conversation. And this is a sense um, what the whole story has always been about. I think it's something that we've been talking about right from the, from the beginning, the, uh, the, uh, the promise that I will be with you. Um, we don't have the banners up today. They broke, actually, before the service. So the day that uh, we haven't, haven't talked about them in a while, and so the day that we bring them back up, they break. But this is the promise that has been given to us from the beginning. I will be with you. It's what Adam and Eve in the garden had. It's what they experienced, that God was actually with them, walking side by side with God, completely naked, completely exposed to him, and in a sense, God being completely exposed and revealed to them. And because of the fallout, because of sin coming into this world, it not only brought brokenness and fragmentation to all other areas of our lives, it also, in a sense, brought fragmentation to the message of God revealing himself to us. And so the message could never be complete. But this is the event. This is the turning point, right? That Jesus now is the I will be with you. He is the, the fulfillment of that promise of God. It comes... Um, in the form of himself, that he is the one who is the complete and final revelation of God to us. He is the one in whom God is holding nothing back. And so verse three goes on to unpack just what that means. It says, the son is the heir of all things. He's saying all that is God's is the son and he's giving it to us, he's revealing it to us. He says, the son is the one through whom also 
He made the universe. And so he's saying the Son is the uncreated one. He's God himself through whom God created all things. Then he says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things with his powerful word. So he's saying everything that God is, the Son shows us. There's nothing that God is that can't be seen in the Son. God's held nothing back when he came in the form of Jesus. And Jesus said that himself. He told his followers, anyone who's seen me has, said, has seen the Father. And so in this sense, not only is Jesus the I will be with you of God, but he is also the you will reflect me of God. He is the perfect, unveiled, complete revelation and reflection of God come right down to us. In Jesus, God holds nothing back. And he's the one who the story, and he's the one who our stories are meant to revolve around because he's the moment that changes anything. And when we get that, we're meant to go through the whole story all over again, right from the beginning, and begin to unpack it in light of this one who is the I will be with you and who is the you will reflect. He's the one who makes sense of everything that has come before and gives new shape and new definition to everything that will come after. And so it means that whenever we open this book, um, what is it that we're meant to look for? Because I think whenever we open this book, we're often coming to it with many different thoughts and with many different ideas and intentions in terms of what it is that we're looking for. And I think the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make is that whenever we open this book, we're not just meant to come looking for a great new insight or a devotional thought for the day. And we're certainly not meant to come looking for more religious rules or regulations or formulas to follow to somehow try and make our own way to God. But the message we're meant to look for whenever we come to this book, the word that we're meant to find is always meant to be a person. The reason this book is here is to drive us into relationship with the one who made us and who came for us to rescue us. And, you know, we all know that this, this is a book that's been used for all sorts of reasons throughout history. We know that many people have come to this book to find guidance on um, living well or moral living. We know that it's a book that's been used um, to bring about laws in our own country and in other countries. We certainly know it's a book that's, used, that's been used as a tool for power and control and manipulation in all sorts of ways, small and large. Um, but if we're honest, we know that we can use this book for all sorts of ways too, and they're not all bad, but what I think Hebrews is saying is they're not necessarily all that helpful either because um, there's many ways, there's many ways that we can open this book and we can miss the message that it's actually giving us. We can miss the word through the word. Um, now, hear what I'm saying on this. I got a couple quotes, and hopefully this will unpack it a little bit more. There's one great quote from a guy named Eugene Peterson. He's a pastor and author and theologian. Um, he says this about the Bible. He says, there have always been a considerable number of people who are fascinated by the intellectual challenge, challenges posed by the Bible. There are others who come to the Bible with a more practical bent. They want to live well and have their children and neighbors live well. And of course, there are always a considerable number of people who read the Bible for what is often called inspiration. I don't want to be too hard on any one of these groups of Bible readers, especially since I've spent considerable time in each group myself. I know I have. But I do want to call attention to the conspicuous fact that in whatever group you find yourself, you will be using the Bible for your purposes, and those purposes 
will not necessarily require anything of you relationally. It's entirely possible to come to the Bible in total sincerity, responding to the intellectual challenge it gives, or for the moral guidance it offers, or for the spiritual uplift it provides, and, in, and not in any way have to deal with a personally revealing God who has personal designs on you. Um, you know, Jesus kind of said pretty much the same thing, um, slightly different words, a little bit more succinct, when he was talking to the Pharisees, and he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You know, this scripture, this book, it's God's revelation to us, but its intent has always been to lead us to the greater revelation who is himself, the Son. And so I think in a lot of ways, we need to learn and relearn and continue to grow in reading the scriptures as a signpost and not a destination. Um, reading this book as a signpost that points us to the destination who is Jesus. And in saying that, I'm not trying to take away anything from this book. I'm not saying that this book isn't the word of God, but the word of God has been given us to lead us to the word of God who is the Son. And I know that that's not always easy. I know that often it's not easy. I understand that this is not an easy book to read for many of us most of the time. Um, and I think God understands that too. I think in many ways, reading this book is like learning a new language. It takes time to learn a new language. It takes time to become fluent in a new language. Um, and unless we really persevere, it's possible that we'll never become fluent in a new language. Um, but I think the promise that God gives us, these realities of the I will be with you and that you will reflect me being completely fulfilled in the one who is the son, I think they're compelling enough to encourage us to not give up, you know, to keep pressing into this word. And that as we do, we begin to see the sun popping up in the pages of the word more and more. And as we press on, we begin to see our own lives popping up more and more in the pages of this book. And we begin to see how the sun is the one who connects to our lives, who makes sense of all of our past, who gives new shape and redefinition to all of our future. You know, and because, um, because the scriptures are always meant to drive us to relationship, the relationship with God, with the one who they're about, I believe that's reason why they're also meant to be worked out in the context of relationship as well with the community that God has given this book to. Because I think that God understands that it's not an easy book to get. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why he's given us the whole community to say, this is a book that our lives are meant to revolve around together. We're meant to, in a sense, flesh this book out together. You know, to come together with others who are seeking to know this same Jesus as the one who is the redefinition, as the one who is that moment for all of our lives. And I think it's in community that we're meant to go through the long and difficult process of learning what Adam and Eve actually experienced before the fallout took place. Learning what it means to be exposed, to be naked in a sense, before other people and with God. I think there's something about that dynamic as we bring our exposed lives 
to one another and with one another and under the word, under the sun, that begins to create a dynamic in us that opens us for the spirit to do the work through the word. For us to begin to experience the sun, um, not just as words on a page, but in the context of real life, of real relationships, of all that's going on in the messiness of our own story. So here's where your home group's pastor plugs home groups, right? Um, Because I get that home groups are not always an easy thing to be a part of. I get that all of our lives are busy, we're involved and have many different responsibilities. Um, Time is at a premium. And I also get that oftentimes when we connect with other people in our home groups, we don't necessarily have any history with them. And it's not easy to relate naturally to people. Sometimes we get that gift. And I know some of your groups are like that. Others are having a difficult time with that. I think that's where the encouragement is still there. Don't give up. This is hard work. Being in community is also like learning a new language. Learning to expose ourselves to one another and to God. Learning to bring our lives under the word who is Jesus and allow him to begin to put the pieces of all the fragmentation in our lives back together. I think that can only happen in And God has built us to be relational, whether we're introverted or extroverted or whatever, we're all relational. So we're meant to press into that. However God has designed you, doesn't need to look the same. I think we're called to press into community. And so if you're part of a home group and you've been having a hard time with it, maybe you need to share that with your home group. Maybe you need to have them pray into you. Like that, that's part of the exposing of ourselves that we need to do. You're not part of a kind of a community like that. I just want to encourage you to take a step. Um, it's never too late. There's never a wrong time to sign up. But what we're signing up for is not an overnight change. I think this is all stuff that begins a process for us of learning a new language. It's the language of the sun, where the word becomes to be enfleshed in the midst of our own relationships with each other as we put ourselves under the word. So why am I saying all this? Because I think um, these are two things that we hear all the time in church. Read your Bible and be in community, right? Um, And so I'm just kind of like a broken record. But what I really believe is that both of these things, reading our Bible and being in community, neither of them are meant to be ends in themselves. Um, The term that theologians use for these things are means of grace. These are a means to a greater end. Neither of them are ends in themselves. They're a means for us to discover Jesus as the one who this book is all about and as the one who fleshes himself out in the midst of our real-life relationship. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that the Bible uses these two terms, the word and the body, to refer to Christ. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the head of the body. And it's in those two places where we find him showing up and fleshing himself to us in the midst of our real-life experience. And so as we discover him, more and more in the word, as we discover him more and more in the body, we experience him as the fulfillment of these two promises, as the I will be with you, and as the you will reflect me, come all the way down to be completely with me, with you, with all of us together in community. We experience him as that moment who more and more begins to make sense of our past and reshapes and redefines our present future. Because if we're honest, I think we all, we realize that we're in constant need of redefining. There's so much in our lives, in our lives that is on this bent toward fragmentation, disconnectedness, um, and mess. And so he continues to call us back to center our lives on him 
on the means, the gifts that he's given us to discover him and meet with him, to begin to make and bring together all of the fragmented parts of our lives into something that's whole, into something that makes sense. That we can look back over all the scenes of our own lives and say, ah, that makes sense. Ah, I understand why he was doing it. Because he's been at work in my life and he will continue to be at work in my life. And so I thought we could just end with a prayer I put together that's, you know, basically just praying out what I've been talking about, what you've been hearing. And if God has just made any of this kind of touch down in your own heart, I'm going to just give you a moment in between each line to just um, say those words in your own heart to God. Ask him to make some of this stuff more real to you. Here's how it is. I'll pray it. You can follow the words and I'll leave some time for you to just um, give God your own words in between each line. It says, Jesus, help me to see you in the pages of your word. Help me to hear you in the voices of my community. Help me to know you as the center of my story, the one who makes sense of all my past and who reshapes all my future. Amen. Um, I guess the word that I want to leave you with is, as I was praying about this this morning, I guess I was thinking about people who might be coming from this on two sides. Um, you know, a sense that there might be some of you who have been faithfully and regularly getting into the Bible and being part of community, and yet you've been finding yourself never actually being led or coming to Jesus himself through those things. In many ways, it's, it, might, it might have become an end in itself for you, whether you just felt like you're checking off the things that you need to do on your spiritual to-do list, or there's been a lack of life in that. On the other side, I wonder if there's some of you here who have just kind of given up on that stuff altogether um, and said, oh, well, you know Jesus is in your life or whatever, you know he's forgiving. And so these things are really just kind of things that don't matter all that much. Oh, but in all of it, I guess I want to bless you with the compelling love of the Son because it's not duty and it's not um, cheap grace that leads us into his presence. It's his love which draws us to hunger and to feast on his word, to find him fleshed out in community. And so I want to bless you with being wooed by the son himself into a deeper love relationship. Hopefully we'll see you out at the 30-minute party. God bless today, guys.